So let's, let's read what the Spirit has for us from James. James 5, 14 and following. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders, call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is God's word. Let's ask for his help and understanding. You can sit down. Lord, as we finish this great book and if we, as as a body, have, have come to love Pastor James preaching to us all these through the, the, the millennia and through your spirit preaching through me. Lord, I thank you for this encouragement from James. I thank you for the correction that you've had for us. And I thank you most of all for, for pointing us to Christ. So one last time, point us to Christ as we open up James. Make us more like Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. There's a, um, there's a board game that came out in the 90s that I played when I was dating Susan a few times. Her family had it. My family didn't have it. But the board game is called Tribond. You know this game? Hands. Like, really? Wow. Okay. <laughs> My illustrations are always terrible. Well, here it is. The, 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 object, the object of the game is to find the commonality between three words. So this, this might ring a bell. For instance, you might have three words, string, navy, green. They're types of beans, right? That's, that's the, the, the word that those three things have in common. Or, or yard, pogo, chop. Sticks. Good job. Those are types of sticks. I love board games like this. This is one of the reasons why I have enjoyed working our way through James. James doesn't always make the connection between the paragraphs explicit. He, he leaves it up to the reader to know that the connection exists. And there's theories about why he does this. I have heard that the cost to, to, to print a book like this, or to, it would have been on, on, uh, on probably lambskin, and then to have it written and copied and sent would have cost thousands and thousands of dollars. And so he's uh, economical with his words. He leaves it up to the reader to know the connection exists. But this is also, even though this is one of the reasons that I've enjoyed James, it's also one of the reasons why James is easily misunderstood. We see that in our passage today. It's it's, it's tempting to to look at today's passage and isolate verses 14 and the the first part of verse 15, isolate them from the rest of the passage. So you hear something like, is anybody sick? Let them call for the elders. They'll pray over them, anointing with oil. In the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. And we take that as sort of a 
faith healers promise, don't we? And say, prayer and anointing will save the one, will, will heal the one who is sick. And all of a sudden, we've got a show on TBN and we're making lots of money, all the while ignoring the rest of the passage. That, that connection that the prayer of faith has to the rest of the book of James, and, and we ignore the second half of verse 15, because faith healers don't like to talk about sin. It's not popular. That'll make someone change the channel on TVN, won't it? And we ignore verse 16, which tells us the point of verses 14 and 15. It's sort of this, this picking and choosing, or if we're playing tri-bond, it's assuming that we're talking about someone in the Navy with green shoelaces when we're actually talking about beans. We, we are in danger of this, misreading, misinterpreting the Bible whenever we open up the Bible. As humans, in our pride, we have a tendency to, to take our preferences and our experiences and impose those on the Scriptures. And then interpret the Word as we want to interpret it. We call this eisegesis. We are reading into the Bible when we should actually be studying the other way around. The Bible is above us. God's word is above us. The Lord is above us. His word is above us. And we are studying. We should be studying in such a way that we come in submission to him, ready to hear from the Lord, ready to be instructed by the Lord, even if that means our presuppositions need correcting, even if that means that our assumptions need correcting. We come ready to be wrong. All that to say, I had to learn in studying this passage, that this passage is not as much about physical healing as you think it is. This passage is actually about the connection between faith and repentance and restoration. Faith, repentance, and restoration. When we, in faith, submit ourselves to the Lord through repentance and confession of sins, we are restored. And we will see... That theme repeated throughout the passage in three different situations. And these are the three situations that James brings up for us. The first situation is a sick person who calls upon the elders of the church. The second situation are the members of the church confessing sins to one another. And the third situation is members of the church praying for someone who has strayed from the faith. All three of those show the importance of humility Confession of sins and, and, and the seeking of, of restoration, the desire for restoration. So let's start in verse 14 with this sick person calling upon the elders of the church. James 5.14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, when he brings up this sickness here, we need to ask, well, what type of sickness is, is James talking about? Is this like any sickness? Is this like a stuffy nose? Upset stomach? Something more serious? Well, it's something more severe. And let me tell you why James is talking about severe cases. There are several cases in the scriptures where we do not see this type of response to sickness. For instance, when, when Timothy is struggling with an ongoing stomach ailment, Paul doesn't tell him, go to the elders and have them pray over you. What does he tell him? He says, Drink some wine. Amen. Amen. He says in 1 Timothy 5, 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. 
And then and when Paul himself is struggling with that thorn in his side, which was probably some type of physical sickness, he did not call on the elders of the church, but he simply prayed to God in heaven. And God said, you're stuck with that. That's for your humility. That's for my glory. My grace is sufficient. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And then there's another passage, which we'll get to soon in Galatians. And Paul tells the Galatian church that the reason he's in Galatia preaching to them in the first place was because of a bodily ailment. And yet that sickness for Paul was not something to be removed. He didn't go to the elders of the Galatian church, at least not that we know of. Rather, he used that opportunity, sick and stuck in Galatia, to preach the gospel. So James isn't saying, I don't think he's saying that every case of illness requires the response we see in verse 14, calling for the elders and, and getting, receiving this anointing and so forth. Notice also, just, just to, to, to my case here, notice also that James says if you are sick, to call the elders of the church rather than go to the elders of the church. That's another clue that, that the sickness is serious. It's, it's probably something grave or some terminal illness that is preventing you from even leaving your home to begin with. So you have to call upon the elders to come to your house because you're too sick to leave. So... But, but, that, that's kind of two reasons why I see this as being a, a severe case. But on that point, I want to just step aside and, and make a little parenthetical me-to-you, pastor-to-congregation comment. Before we go any further, the best way that we can care for you as pastors is when we know what's going on. All right? The expectations for how this works aren't always clear, right? We come from different cultures and we're gathered together. We come from different sides of the country, different countries altogether. But we're here and we have to sort of figure out how to do church together. So it's not clear, but let me spell it out for you, my expectations, the pastor's expectations. So Justin and Josh as well, they told me to say this. If you're in the hospital and you want us to know, call us. Text me, email me, have a family member reach out to me. Do something so that I know that you're there. Some people I get, I, some people prefer to keep health matters to themselves. I totally understand that. I'm, I'm more that way as well. Sometimes health issues are a private matter. Sometimes it's embarrassing. Sometimes you just need the rest and you don't want to be bothered by loud pastors. <laughs> if, you, if you want us to know though, call us. So that we can pray for you and tell you, uh, and, and if, if, you, if you want us to visit you, tell us. It's not imposing on us. This is a privilege that we have as pastors to come and, and visit with you. So tell us. And that's especially the case, getting back to the text here, that's especially the case when you are seriously ill, like the type of case that James is talking about here. All right, so this is a serious case and if you believe James 5.14 to be for you, and I believe it is, then you should call the elders. Call the elders. Well, when the elders arrive at this person's home, James says they're to anoint the sick person with oil. Now, what is this about? Because this is not something that we ever talk about, is it? What's going on here? Is, the, is, this, is this like magic oil? Is it some sort of special oil? Does, does God only work through the oil? Is it medicinal? What's going on? Well, the anointing oil is just olive oil, 
but it is symbolic. It's symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And, and the story behind this is pretty fascinating. So uh, you know I'd love to do this with you. Let's go back and, and kind of dig into the scriptures and understand where this oil is coming from. It goes back to prophecies about the coming Christ. So Psalm chapter 45 is a, a messianic psalm, and it says that the coming Messiah would receive the anointing oil of gladness. Psalm 45, 7 says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil. There's the anointing oil with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. All right, this is talking about Messiah. How do we know? Because the Bible says in Hebrews 1, 8, that the only person that verse could possibly be about is the Son of God, the Messiah. Hebrews goes on to say that that spirit-anointed Messiah is Jesus. And because Jesus is the Messiah, we know now the age of Messiah has arrived. He's ruling now. He's, he's here. He's arrived. Which means all of those prophecies about what the age of Messiah would look like have also been fulfilled. And one of those prophecies, and one of those that James has been quoting a lot of, if you've been paying attention, is Isaiah 61. Easily, Isaiah 61 is easily one of the top five, five most important messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And Isaiah 61 says that in the age of Messiah, Isaiah 61.3 says, He will grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness, there it is, instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So, so the Messiah, Isaiah says, is going to take that same oil of gladness that, that, the, that he was anointed with, that is the Holy Spirit, and he will anoint his people. He will pour out the Spirit on his people. Jesus himself said, that's me. So when you, when you read the Gospels, you will see Jesus say, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. He has come, anointed by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, to bring good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. All of those things, are what Jesus was in Galilee. He opens up the scroll. He reads those words, and he says, today that's been fulfilled in your hearing, in your seeing. This is Jesus. He's the one who's received the oil of gladness, who will pour out the oil of gladness, which is why the gospel of Mark is keen to show this fulfillment. In Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 6, Jesus sends out his disciples. And Mark says, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Now that's the good news preached, proclaimed to the poor. Repent for the forgiveness of sins. That is Isaiah 61, fulfillment. And then Mark says, and they cast out many demons. There's liberty to the captives. That's Isaiah 61, fulfillment. And anointed with oil, many who were sick and healed them. There's comfort. So right there in Mark, you have the proclamation of freedom from sin, a freedom from demonic rule, a call to repent, and there is healing as well with this anointing with oil which is a foreshadowing of Pentecost, the foreshadowing of the Spirit who is soon to be poured out on the church. Those are all Isaiah 61 prophecies fulfilled in Christ. And all of that is what James is talking about here. James, when he, when he, when he says in verse 14 
that, that we are, the elders are to anoint this, this sick person with oil. He's, he's referring to all of that. He's, he's, what's happening when the elders of the church, uh, church anoint this sick person with oil and they pray in the Lord's name, they are appealing to the Lord in faith saying, we believe Jesus is the Messiah. We believe that the spirit that God anointed him with has been poured out on his church, and in particular, this person, this sick one. So Lord, this is their prayer. Lord, this is one of your adopted ones. She has your spirit because she's been justified by Christ's work. And because she is yours, Father, we know you will take care of her. That's the prayer of faith. That's why James calls this this prayer of the elders the prayer of faith. It It is trust, faith, trust, that the Lord cares for his own. Look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. So, so the faith, this is, we need to pay attention here. The faith that he is speaking of here is not a belief that the person will be healed. This is where we get sidelined. So I want to say it again slowly. The prayer of faith is not believing hard enough that the person will be healed. If it were, then the faith would be in the faith itself. The faith would be in the elder's own ability to conjure up enough belief in his own ability to believe. It's circular. That, 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 that false teaching is an assurance-destroying buzzsaw. Because if the person isn't healed, then, then either the sick person begins to think, well, I must not have been believing hard enough, or the elder begins to think, well, I must not have been believing hard enough. I, don't, I must not have the right kind of faith. I might be saved. And he begins to doubt and doubt, and doubt. That's not what faith is. That's not how faith works. Faith is outward. It is not a belief in believing. It is a trust in God's faithfulness. Faith rests on God. The prayer of faith is faith in Christ and in his work. It is a submission to God in his will, knowing and trusting that God has brought us forth in Christ, forgiven us in Christ, that in Christ, at his return, we will be raised up. That's faith. So what's happening is this church member is going to the elders, and all of them together, the member and the elders, are going before the Lord. So imagine here, think of the scene of the paralytic man and his friends, and, and the friends are lowering him through the roof and taking him before Jesus, that's a picture. It's a good picture from the Gospels of the elders and the sick member. And here's what you need to know. When you go before the Lord in faith, when you go before the Lord in humility, you're saying, I need Jesus. And when you do that, you are acknowledging everything that James has taught us up to this point. This sickness is a trial sent from the Lord. In faith, this church member who is sick is submitting their life to God. And in humility, they're seeking the Lord and seeking the counsel of the elders for help in this. A church member who calls the elders in this situation is acknowledging this trial is from the Lord and it could very well be a disciplinary trial, a corrective discipline. 
That's part of what faith is. It's a it's submission to Jesus as Lord, to God as Father. It's knowing that, trusting that God disciplines those he loves in order to keep them in the faith. So this anointing and prayer is an act of contrition and humility before the Lord. It is saying to the Lord, God, we trust that what you were doing is good. And it is for this person's good and for your glory. And that makes sense of the rest of the verse. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So, so remember back again to the paralytic man in the Gospels. When the paralytic man was lowered before Jesus, the first thing that Jesus did was tell the man, take heart, your sins are forgiven. That's right, your sins are forgiven. That, that was the paralytic man's true need, and that's your true need. That's everyone's true need. Yes, he was healed of his paralysis. Jesus said, rise, and he got up and walked. And, and you can be healed of something serious. I believe that. I believe you can be healed, and I believe that sometimes that is God's will. You could be healed of something serious at 25 years old, and again, then again at 40, and then again at 70, but eventually what happens? Eventually, Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for every man to die, and then comes judgment. These prayers of the elders are not a loophole that gets you out of death. Eventually, you're going to die. Forgiveness of sins, then, is your greater need, isn't it? So if you call the elders of the church, and you'd like us to anoint you with oil, you better be ready to repent. Be ready to talk about repentance. Now, I do want to qualify this here. It's not always the case that sickness is the result of sin or rebellion or something against God. We live in a fallen world. Sickness and death mar this world. They taint this world. And we have that, that wonderful story in John's gospel where Jesus is interacting. Jesus and his disciples are interacting with a blind man. And the disciples say to Jesus, Jesus, whose sin is it that caused this man to be born? blind? Was it him or was it his parents? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So certainly there are cases of illnesses that are not related at all to specific sin. Job, the entire book of Job, is a great textbook case of this. And yet, in both cases, in the, in the blind man and in Job's story, God is very clearly sovereign over those sicknesses, isn't he? It isn't outside of his realm of authority. It's not outside of his providence. Further, there are numerous cases in the scriptures where sickness is the result of sin. Or I should say, however, there are numerous cases in the scriptures where sickness does come from sin. Let me just name a couple for you. There's a, there's a, because there's a reason the, the disciples asked Jesus about this. They're not making this up. This is their training. They've read the Bible. Miriam, for instance, is given leprosy by God as a result of her sin against God and Moses. And interestingly, to our text today, interestingly, the leprosy that is given to Miriam leads to repentance and forgiveness of sins and restoration. There are, there are quite a few examples very similar to that throughout the Old Testament, but Deuteronomy 28 just spells it out for us. Let me tell you what Deuteronomy 20, 
28 says, Moses tells the people as they're about to enter the land, he says, listen, Israel, if you break God's commandments and stray from him, now I'm quoting directly, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting and sicknesses grievous and lasting. What does that sound like? If you sin, God's going to make you sick. That's not always the case. But it's a promise from the Lord to Israel. Unless you think this is only an Old Testament thing, the very same thing happened to Corinth in the New Testament. The Corinthian church was sinning grievously in the way that they took the Lord's Supper. And so 1 Corinthians 11.30 says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. Paul is saying, just as Moses told Israel, Paul is saying, look, your sickness... This severe sickness is directly related to your sin. And we don't like that, do we? We don't like to hear that because we don't like to acknowledge that our sin is an affront to God. And yet it is. Continuing in sin is denying the power of Christ's work on the cross. Christ died to free us from sin and bondage to sin. Do you believe that? Then as we saw last week with Josh's sermon, don't make a practice of sinning. But if you do, and here's here's what James is addressing, if you are caught up in sin, and you are actually a born-again Christian, then in his love for you, this is key, in God's love for you, God disciplines you like a father, because he is your father, and he disciplines you so that you would turn from what is harming you. If you are a good father in this church, do you just let your kids run wild into sin and danger? No, you discipline them. That's what this is all about. Sometimes that discipline comes in the form of sickness. And that moves us on to the next section. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, that's a clue. It's a massive clue that the author is about to tell you something really important. The therefore here in verse 16 is a follow-up from verses 14 and 15. What James is doing here is expanding his argument. You have this. Um, small case of a, a very severe sickness, and this person calls the elders, and then he says, you know what? All of y'all should be doing that. He's expanding his argument from the statement that the sick should call the elders to deal with their sin. Verse 16 says, all of us should be confessing our sins and praying for one another so that we may be healed. This is a regular feature of the Christian life. This is normal. This is a means of grace, a consistently humble and contrite heart before God and before one another ultimately is is effective in sanctifying us, moving us more and more towards our ultimate salvation in Christ. So when James here, in this instance, when he says, so that you may be healed, that's an expansion, not only on who we're talking about, but on, on, on the definition of the word healed altogether. So it's a, there's this narrow sense of healing where it's 
healing for physical ailments, and then there's a broader biblical sense of healing. Several times throughout the New Testament, uh, uh, Isaiah 6 is referenced. So New Testament referencing Old Testament Isaiah 6. And, and that reference is from verse 15. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears, with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. That, that turning... That repentance that Isaiah is talking about, that is a turning to the Lord and his Messiah and receiving the healing, receiving the restoration from sin, which is why Peter uses the same language. Peter, 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin, live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. Exact same word. And when we do confess our sins to one another, and when we pray for one another, we experience this restoration to spiritual life. It is like rain falling on the parched earth. Have you experienced that? You've been caught up in some sin. You know about it. You know it. And you confess it. And it's just this freeing feeling, isn't it? It's like rain falling on the parched earth. So hold on to that. That's why James says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The kind of prayer that he's talking about here in verse 16 is not a prayer for physical healing, but a prayer for spiritual renewal. And we know that because of the example he uses. He uses Elijah, look at verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Now, before we continue, if, 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 if I were to take an example, or you were to take an example from Elijah's ministry about the power of prayer in response to physical sickness, you have some great examples. And you would probably use Elijah's prayers to raise up the widow's son. It's right there in the middle of the Elijah story. It's a shadow of the coming healings of Christ. In that story, you have these explicit prayers, Elijah calling out to God three times to raise up the boy. But that healing is not the example that James chooses to tell us about when he tells us about the power of prayer. Instead, James chooses the episode in Elijah's ministry when he prayed that it wouldn't rain. Look at, look at the rest of the verse. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Now, here's what you need to know about Elijah's prayer that it would not rain. Elijah was praying according to God's promise. Going all the way back to Deuteronomy 11. I'm just, Deuteronomy is really important. If you understand Deuteronomy, and you understand Genesis, and you understand Isaiah... You get, you get the Bible, and you get Jesus. Uh, but, but in Deuteronomy 11, turn there with me. Turn to Deuteronomy 11, because I want you to see this. So here, we are, we are in our timeline, in our imagination, with Elijah, and he's, he's praying for the, earth, the, the skies to, to no longer give any rain. And what he's praying is from Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy 11, verses 11 through 17. <clears throat> so again, like I said earlier, Deuteronomy is this Israel on the, on, the, on the 
verge of going into the promised land. And this is what Moses tells them. The land that you're going over to possess, this is verse 11, Deuteronomy 11, 11. The land you're going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by rain from heaven. A land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. Now, you might remember from earlier in James chapter 5, James has already referenced this passage. In James 5, 7, when he talks about patiently waiting on our sanctification, that blessing from God, he said we are to wait like a farmer waiting on the early and the later rains. Do you remember that? So Deuteronomy goes on. He will give you grass in your fields for your livestock. You shall eat and be full, but take care. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship then. Then... And the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So the reason why Elijah prays that it would not rain is because Israel, led by wicked king Ahab, has turned aside to serve and worship other gods. Ahab has raised up the Asherah poles. He's built temples to Baal. He married this, this, this awful woman, a Baal worshiper, a literal Jezebel. And he's literally doing exactly what God told Israel would bring this sort of devastation. Ahab's doing all of that. So when Elijah prays that it would not rain, Elijah is praying according to Deuteronomy 11. He's praying according to God's will. He's saying, God, your people have strayed from you. And you said that if they did this, you would shut up the heavens so that it will not rain. So Lord, shut up the heavens so that you can bring them to repentance and bring them back to you. Restore your people, O Lord, and do it by any means necessary. And that's exactly what God does. In response to the prayers of the righteous man who is just like us, God stops up the heavens and he stops the rains. And this came from God. God's discipline is not light. It's not a slap on the wrist. It's not go stand in the corner. When it doesn't rain for three and a half years, that means crops are failing. Livestock are dying. People are starving. The weak are especially struggling. The poor are especially struggling. It is a severe severe mercy from God meant to turn the people and in particular to turn the king back from sin. And it is only after that three and a half year severe discipline that God calls Elijah to go up to Mount Carmel, to Ahab, to that confrontation that we read about. Thank you, Christian, for reading that. And and what happened there? The Lord reveals himself in power as the God of Israel. He answered uh, Elijah's cry. Let me just tell you what Elijah said again. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that the people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Elijah is very clear. Elijah is praying for repentance from, from, from God's people. And so God shows up. 
He shows up in response to the prayers of the righteous man. He stops the rains. And then in response to the prayers of the righteous man, he sends the rains. And the people, he does that because the people have returned to the Lord. They have responded to the discipline of the Lord. 1 Kings 18.39 says, And when all the people saw it, when, when they saw God's power and his might, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord is God. The Lord is God. What are they doing? They're repenting. This falling on the face in worship to the one true God, this is repentance. And then Elijah tells him, slaughter the false prophets, which is really violent, which they do. And this is the first act of obedience after repentance, to which Elijah then prays, okay, send the rain. He prayed again, and heaven gave rain. This is the way James puts it. He prayed again, heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And there's the restoration. There's the healing. Israel has been brought back from idolatry as a result of the prayers of Elijah. And the sick land that was bearing no fruit is now being nourished by God, healed by the heavenly gifts from above, which again is another James way of talking about God's gifts, isn't it? And that right there, Elijah's example, that's our example of how to do prayer, repentance, confession of sin, and to seek restoration, healing. It is through this process that the Lord brings the fruit of righteousness in our lives. But it must be a constant process for us. In the context of the body of Christ, we do this, submitting ourselves to God, confessing our need for Christ, repenting of sin, and growing in Christ's righteousness, bearing the fruit. And not only, not only do we practice these means of grace with one another together, we also, as the body of Christ, do this for those who have strayed. And that's what Elijah was doing, wasn't it? James is saying, you and I, we're like Elijah. We can do this too. He's not necessarily telling you to pray that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years. Rather, he's telling us to pray for those who have gone astray, just like Israel had gone astray. He's, he's saying, your prayers for the restoration of a straying brother or sister are powerful prayers. God works through those prayers. And he's also saying that we are to, in submission to God, pray that the Lord would use whatever means necessary to bring them back. Pray that God would bring a severe drought to their life. Pray that he would bring sickness if necessary. This is the, the, the rock bottom prayer. Have you prayed that for someone before? Lord, bring them to the bottom. Bring them to the bottom of themselves. You can imagine the, 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 the same prayers that the father in the story of the prodigal son would have had. Bring my son to hunger and thirst and slopping pigs and longing to be home again. Bring him to the point where he wants to come back because he's not going to do that in his pride. He needs to be humbled. So pray Elijah-like prayers, brothers and sisters. Pray Elijah-like prayers for your brothers and sisters in Christ who have strayed from the faith. Like Elijah did, call on God to be true to his promises. Pray like this. Lord, this person was once trusting in you. I saw them baptized. I heard their testimony. They seem to be every bit a born-again follower of Christ as the rest of us are. But they, they've strayed. You said, Lord, you said 
you would go after the straying sheep and that none of yours would be lost. You said nothing could keep them from your love. You promised neither height nor depth nor angels or demons, nothing. So Lord, stay true to your promise. If this is your adopted child, if Christ died for this one and his blood covers this one, then bring them to repentance and restore them to the faith. Lord, heal them. That's what Elijah did. That's what we're to do. And that's why James gives us this final word of go get them encouragement in these last two verses. Look at verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, which is to say if someone prays Elijah prayers and they repent and they come back, then let that person know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James is saying, your prayers can have that effect. It's not your persuasiveness who's tried to persuade someone who's wandered from the faith. <laughs> that has never, never gone well for me. I could, you, could, you could persuade them and use logic and reason until you're blue in the face. They didn't leave the faith because of logic and reason. It's not your phone calls. It's not your visits. It's not your messages, although you should... You should use all of those means. Ultimately, what brings them back? It's your prayers. Appealing to God's mercy, appealing to his promises, and he acts in power and in loving, merciful discipline. That's what brings back the sinner. That's why the prayer of a righteous man has great power in its working, because it does something that you can't do and I can't do. So don't ever say, there's nothing else I can do. All I can do is pray. I have said that. It's embarrassing. There, there are folks who, who were in our congregation who have strayed from, from, from Jesus. Folks that we covenanted with as members together, and they get caught up in sin. They stop gathering at the church for worship. They stop answering phone calls. They stop answering messages. And I, I kind of, in my pride, I just give up and I say, well, there's nothing else I can do. What does James say? Dustin, it's not about you and what you can do in your power. The single most important thing you can do is pray for them. Bring this to God first, because God will stop up the skies to save one of his blood-bought children. God will and he does intervene for those whom he loves. So pray and pray fervently, pray in faith, and pray in order to save your dear brother's soul from death, to bring him to repentance and forgiveness of sins. Because that's what's available in Christ. That's what they're turning their backs to. So if you're sick, and you are really sick, and you want us to to come sit with you as elders, we'll do that. But know what God is calling you to. And brothers and sisters, when you gather with us a couple Wednesdays from now, and we sit in the fellowship hall, and we're praying together, and we confess sins together, know that we're doing what James says to do. And when when you think of that person who hasn't been at church in six months, or that person that you know is caught up in sin, pray like Elijah. That's what James is telling us to do. He's, 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 He's a pastor of a church, and he's saying, church, this is how we care for one another. We pray for one another. 
and pray for one another and pray for one another.